This has been a good day. I think this is probably the best Easter Sunday we've ever had in this church. And I hope what I preach doesn't mess that up. <laughs> uh, something JJ said uh, during the prayer time, I just wanted to tee off on that uh, first before we get into what I do want to talk about. Uh, JJ uh, said Jesus, he mentioned that uh, by way of prayer that uh, we should be praying that pastors uh, pray not only that Jesus is uh, risen, but that he is the reigning king. And uh, those two things made me think of Romans chapter 1 because that is exactly that is exactly what Paul says in Romans uh, 1. That regarding Jesus, he puts those two things, uh, his resurrection and his reign as king, together. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God. And by son of God there, he means, we know this because of passages like 2 Samuel 7, uh, he means there, uh, the Son of God as it relates to David, the Davidic Son of God, a kingly son. And so what he's saying there is he was declared to be the kingly Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. But get this, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ or Jesus the King, that word Christ meaning King, Jesus the King our Lord, and uh, Andy, what Andy said uh, goes right along with that. <clears throat> he, because of what he gave of himself and his earthly mission, because of his sacrifice, we know that because of passages like Philippians chapter 2, that uh, because of what he was willing to give up, uh, to give up rather, uh, he was upgraded to this position, not just king of heaven, as he tells Pilate in John 18 that uh, I am a king of a different realm. But at his death and through his resurrection, he became king not just of heaven, but king of heaven and earth. Hence the reason in Matthew 28, he says, All authority has now been given to me. Go, therefore, into all nations and make disciples of all peoples. Well, again, this is not... Uh, my message for today, the handout that you should have in front of you uh, should read at the top six shiny words for Easter, six shiny words for Easter. I was up uh, late last night prepping this, not because I waited until Saturday to do my sermons. I had a neighbor one time that uh, I saw an, an elderly gal uh, in the uh, a neighbor who I saw in the uh, grocery store and uh, it was a Saturday, and she said, oh, uh, she said, shouldn't you be at home preparing your sermon? She said, that's what my Lutheran pastor does. He waits till Saturday to prepare his sermons. That's not the reason. Um, <laughs> about 8 o'clock last night, going through my notes <clears throat> for today, I realized that there was far too much to be covered uh, this morning, and I really wanted to get uh, to... Uh, the portion of the text, our primary text uh, for today, which is Acts 17. 
Acts 17, verses 22 through 31. I realized I wasn't going to be able to get to the portion related to the resurrection, and so uh, I went upstairs to my office, and uh, I rewrote everything, and uh, what I produced is what you have in front of you. Please forgive me if there are uh, any grammatical errors therein. I did not have as much time as I normally would like to review my notes And uh, what you have is going to be more of an Easter rant uh, rather than an exegetical uh, sermon. Uh, So with that in mind, uh, if you would then turn to those uh, or to that passage or our primary text, if you haven't done that already, Acts chapter 17. And if you don't have a handout, just raise your hand. Anybody need a handout before we get started? Okay, Acts chapter 17. Please follow along as I begin reading in verse... 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. When I did that, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown or in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing in our time, shall we? Father, thank you that we have had the incredible, incredible privilege of coming again into your house. We know that our risen and reigning king is here with us right now. Father, thank you for that privilege to come into his presence, to worship you, to worship at his footstool. Father, we pray that what we do now as we come to the high point of our worship, that what is said in this place would be your words, not our words. 
and that it would bring glory to our risen and raising King. Make it so in His name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, follow with me by directing your eyes to the top of your handout there. Let me give you just a brief introduction to uh, these particular verses. These verses represent Paul's Mars Hill, and that's uh, the King James rendering of the Areopagus. Uh, The term Areo uh, comes uh, from the particular god that this hill was uh, named after. And uh, he was uh, considered the god of Mars or the god of war. And so it's sometimes rendered as Mars Hill. These verses represent Paul's Mars Hill address to the Athenians, as we saw there in verse 22, men of Athens. In it we find six shiny words to think about when you spend time to talk about when you spend time after the sermon, stuffing your face and fellowshipping for Easter. Sorry, again, it was late uh, last night when I wrote this. Why I refer to them as shiny. They are words that in their context evoke the kind of conversations we need to be having with the people in our world today. They, I believe, are the conversations which bring the most needed forms of light to our dark and confused world. That and the fact that the song Shiny Happy People by R.E.M. has also been playing in my head for some reason. So, shiny words. With that in mind then, let's uh, begin. Number one, looking then at verse 22 So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are, notice, very religious. And there is our first shiny word. It is the word religious. And you can fill in the blank there with that that I've given to you. Religious. Religious. Possessing a system of morality. And by morality, I mean right and wrong. That's what we're talking about when we talk about morality. Rules for right and wrong. What we determine to be right and wrong. And that is all that that word religion or religious refers to. It refers to a person's moral beliefs, their system of morality. As humans, we are moral creatures by nature. Meaning what? Meaning that we are creatures concerned with right and wrong. And this is what makes us different uh, from the animal kingdom. Animals are not concerned with morality. What, therefore, Paul says to the Athenians is true about all humans. We are all very religious. And this includes people who would claim that they are not religious. A couple of questions 
Do they not practice some form of morality? Those who would say, well, I'm not a very religious person. Well, do you not practice some form of morality? Do you not have rules for right and wrong? Or do you not discern certain things to be right or wrong? Do you not believe in those things? If you do, then you possess a system of morality, which means that you are a very religious person, whether you know it or not. Whatever determines that person's moral beliefs, in other words, what determines what is right and what is wrong for that person, is therefore that person's religion irrespective of whether it has a formal name. I'll give you an example here. Bob relies on Bob to determine right and wrong. Bob, therefore, follows the religion or the cult of Bob. And so maybe that's uh, the way that uh, we should identify those persons who say, well, I'm not very uh, religious. All they're really saying by that is that they are following the religion of whatever their name is. Bob, Bill, Jim, whoever it is. What religion do you follow? That is the real question here, is it not then? What religion do you follow? In other words, what determines right and wrong for you? Again, we are all very religious. What Paul says here again to the Athenians is true for all people. Number two, or verse 23, Paul again says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for, here's the reason why, I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown or ignorant, this I proclaim to you. Our second then shiny word is the word unknown. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown. Again, the the other term that you could uh, replace this with is ignorance. And uh, I believe the uh, New American Standard uh, has it that way. The altar to an unknown or literally ignorant God. This is at the top of this hill where uh, Paul is now preaching. This is... uh, We might say the pulpit that he preaches from. It is an altar to an unknown or ignorant God. And most likely this particular particular altar was created by the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who had invited him to speak. Where am I getting that from? Well, if you go uh, back before our verses to verses 16 through 21, uh, you'll see this. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, meaning for uh, Timothy and for Silas, his spirit was provoked within, within him as he saw the city was full of idols, false gods. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. As he was doing that, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So again, Epicurean, verse 18, and Stoic philosophers. The reason I say that they are uh, probably or most likely the ones who have built this particular altar that Paul is now referencing in verse 23 is because... Like many people today, these two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics, uh, were atheists. They believed that whatever created the universe, including them, uh, was not only unknown, but unable to know what had or what it had created. Unknown and unable to know what it had created. Put into modern terms, What created the universe was eternal matter. That's what we hear today. It all started with eternal matter. Lifeless, unintelligent, impersonal, non-sentient matter or energy. That's where it all started. The big problem, the big problem with believing this or believing this way, atheism makes it impossible To be human. To be the moral creatures that we have been created to be. Creatures who care about right and wrong. Why do I say that? Well, because the only way to possess a morality or a system of right and wrong that is truly equitable or fair or unbiased and therefore truly just or righteous for every single human being, is if it is the same for everyone. Just think about it. Another way of saying that is that it's objective rather than subjective. And the only person that has the right to determine that system, a system that will be the same for everyone, and in that way then therefore be equitable, fair, or unbiased, is the one who created us, our owner, our owner. And the only, or excuse me, without direction from our owner, without that kind of moral direction, the best our moral beliefs can be is just the opposite again of objective, subjective. Which means what? Every person believing what they want, or as it says in the book of Judges, everyone walking according to their own law. And maybe in your mind right now, you're thinking, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I think that, uh, you know, as the the saying goes, uh, live and let live. Everybody just do what they think is right for them. Though that may sound good again on the surface, in the end it results in nothing truly being right or wrong. Nothing truly being right or wrong. Since whatever is right for you is wrong for me and vice versa. Eternal matter, however, is not a person. 
It is a thing. As already stated, it isn't intelligent or knowledgeable about anything. Eternal matter or energy cannot, therefore, direct its creation in issues of morality. Hence the reason the United States has become increasingly more violent and evil over the past 25 years. As atheism has taken more of a foothold in this country, more humans have lost their ability to truly be moral or just, to correctly discern right from wrong. People are instead acting more like animals, controlled only by impulse or instinct, driven to do what they do because it is what they feel in the moment. Even in recent months, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. That is uh, what's being promoted today. Do what you feel. Another way of putting it is, follow your heart. Again, the problem as it relates to morality is that my heart is very different than your heart. So who's right? There are a couple of names, uh, by the way, for uh, this kind of morality. Do what you want, do what you feel. The first is called anarchy. The strong take what they want and do what they want to the weak. That's anarchy. How many of you are good with that? This is where atheism leads. Or number two, Satanism or uh, Thelema. Thelema. What does this particular system of morality teach? The autonomous or freed will. It has but one law, do what thou wilt. Aleister Crowley was the inventor of Thelema and the person most influential to all modern day forms of Satanism. Crowley claimed his religion and this one law of do what thou wilt, do what you will to do or feel to do. Uh, he claims that his religion was provided by a demon named Iwas who spoke through his wife. Comforting, isn't it? The spirit of our age, do what you will, do what you feel. I think that's what's right. I think everybody should just make their own decisions. Have you been talking to Iwas? Number three. Again, as I said, this is a little bit of a rant today. Number three, verse 24. The beginning of verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. The God who made the world and everything in it. The shiny word, G-O-D, God. When the Bible uses uh, that term, capitalized there, G-O-D, what is it referring to? An eternal, intelligent, deliberate designer who created everything, including us. Verses 24 through 26, Paul unpacks this a little bit more for us. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In Colossians 1, we're told that uh, 
Jesus is the primary person of the Godhead that did the creating and continues to be the one who sustains every single person and every single thing that exists. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That's why racism has no place in the world. We are all truly related because we all have the same parents. One man, one couple, every nation of mankind having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Seeing that God is our creator, which again is what uh, Paul tells us here, this God that is unknown to you is very known. He is the one that created the world. He is intelligent, not unintelligent. He is sentient. He is living, not lifeless. He is not eternal matter. He is eternal mind. His creation was not by accident. It is perfectly and completely deliberate. Hence the reason he has determined allotted periods. The time in which we live in a certain place or live altogether. The boundaries of our dwelling place. The God that is our creator is our legal or rightful, and again, his word, not mine, Lord, the God who made the world and everything in it. Notice again, verse 24, being Lord of heaven and earth. What does that term mean? Years ago, I used to teach the kids this. What does Lord mean? And they would all respond, boss. Means Jesus is the boss. Jesus is Lord. That term means owner, authority, master. Because he created us, he is our owner. The same principle that I applied earlier to eternal matter, if that was the case, would mean that eternal matter is our owner. That's a poor owner or master, since again, it is lifeless, unintelligent, unable to guide us in our morality. The truth is, instead, we were created by a very intelligent being, a personal being, God And because he created us, he owns us, not the other way around. We need him, he doesn't need us. Again, Paul's words, not mine. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Psalm 119 verse 91 says, All things... David there speaking says, all things are your servants. Psalm 50 verses 10 through 12, God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I own it all. The origin again of the universe is therefore not eternal matter, but eternal mind. Eternal mind. And this brings up one of the I believe, greatest disservices of our atheistic evolution-based scientific community. And that is its deployment of really the con man's favorite tool for conning poor thinkers. And what is that? Well, it's called the fallacy of the excluded middle in logic. And here is what that teaches. 
uh, the options that I am presenting to you or communicating to you, I communicate them as though they are the only viable options when in fact there are more that are available. What this looks like among atheistic or evolution-based science uh, scientists. Here's what they'll say. I just uh, watched a lecture on crows, and this particular professor was talking about the intelligence of crows. And uh, he said, the reason, he said, that that, that, that uh, commonality then that we share with them, we're intelligent, they're intelligent, uh, this commonality among different species indicates a common ancestor, right? And that is the, uh, the evolutionary position, right? You see commonality, well, that must, uh, that must mean common ancestor. And uh, they present that as though that is the only viable option or explanation for commonality that exists between us and other species, That's one option, but here's the other. Commonality indicates not common ancestor, but author. Did you ever think of that? Common author. Some of you uh, attended the the Van Gogh uh, digital exhibit uh, last, I believe it was uh, last winter. And the one thing that you recognize, uh, I think, possibly more than uh, other artists about uh, Van Gogh or his artwork is that uh, every piece possesses the same unique signature style. In other words, when you see Van Gogh, you know it's Van Gogh, right? It all has his particular style to it. You see, commonality can also point in the direction of common author. This is Genesis 2, 7, as well as verse 19. There where it says that God formed man out of the dust. It says also that God formed all of the animals that he, that he presented to Adam, that he formed them out of the dust. The Hebrew word there is yatsar, and it literally means this, to artistically form. In Hebrew, this is the word that uh, actually refers to uh, the subject or the discipline of art. And it's the term that is used there by Moses to describe what God is doing. He's yatsar, he's artistically forming, he's leaving his unique signature or design on his creation. The good news, the good news Because of the advances in DNA study as well as quantum physics, many former atheist scientists are now embracing the eternal mind intelligent design position. Some of you are aware of the the Discovery Institute in Seattle. They are a a non-Christian organization. I'm glad for that because it shows that this isn't uh, some kind of agenda, some kind of Christian agenda that steers this particular organization. There are Christians that uh, work for that particular organization, uh, but the scientists there are convinced and have become convinced now of uh, the intelligent design position, and that again because of uh, uh, recent advances in DNA study as well as quantum physics. What are those advances? 
Well, the discovery that uh, molecular information does not exist in its smallest irreducible form as matter or material elements, which means that we are at the end of uh, the atomic, what was known as the atomic age, when what scientists embraced was known as atomic theory, and the belief was that, uh, I think it was Plato that actually came up with the term atom, but that all things could be eventually reduced down to some irreducible uh, form of material or matter. And uh, what he called those was, of course, atoms. Well, we now know that uh, that's not true. The building blocks of the universe are not made up of matter or material, but instead measurements. Now, this is where I'm in the deep end of the pool. Let me just say that. But here's one way of thinking of it, and I got it from the guys who, who know more than I do about this. Think ripples on the water without the water. Everything being reduced down to a measurement with no real material form. This is what we're finding in things like string theory. Or what they now call digital physics. The building blocks of the universe, again, are measurements, are strings of information, more accurately, command code, much like the command codes used by a programmer or a programmer to create things on a computer screen, and they come from or exist in a dimension outside our own. Scientists now believe, and this has been demonstrated through things like superposition, maybe you've heard that term, or it's sometimes called quantum entanglement. But there are other dimensions where these irreducible measurements ultimately exist. The material world that we exist in is not, in other words, the only one. Where there is such programming or information where it exists, there must also then be a programmer or a sentient mind. Matter doesn't program anything. Paul knew this to be true, by the way, before any quantum physicist ever existed. <laughs> what they're discovering in the, uh, the world of science, we've known from the Word of God for thousands upon thousands of years it goes right back to the very beginning of our bibles genesis 1 in the beginning god this intelligent personal sentient eternal being created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, and we see this repeated over and over, let there be light. He spoke, and there was light. He commanded, and it was created. What then are we being told in places like Genesis 1, 1 through 3? Information are, or command code are the building blocks of creation. Exactly what our top scientists are now discovering. It's always been there. It's always been there. Paul knew this. 
Consider again, going back to our primary text in Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 26, Paul's words again there, having determined, very interesting phrase, horizo is the, uh, the term in Greek. Here's literally what that term means. Establish a set of events through deliberate command or programming. Isn't that awesome? Boom. Right? That's it. Establish a set of events through deliberate command or programming. This is what God did in determining our allotted periods of existence and the boundaries of our dwelling places. This meaning or this word, horizo, tells us a lot about why the ancients chose it as a word for horizon. We get the word horizon from this term, horizo. Psalm 19 in the Hebrew actually picks this up. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 10. David says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. Notice here, what he's talking about, creation. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no, or there are, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. Each of these days of creation. In them he has sent a tent for the sun. In the Septuagint, the Greek rendering here, horizo, deliberate programming, the horizon, the tent of the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving her chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its light. Notice now the transition. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules, the commands of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. What's the connection? Right? That's the question. In the first six verses here, he's uh, talking about creation. And all of a sudden, he segues into conversation about God's commands, about God's law, about God's morality. What is the connection? God's laws. God's commands. Creating all that exists. Hence the reason the author can say, Your law, Lord, that which created, that which now pours forth its own speech. Your law, your word, is perfect. It's perfect. Laws that govern the events of creation. We think in terms of gravity. We say the physical laws, but what we're told in Scripture is that it's more than just the physical laws that govern our universe. It is also God's moral law. This is sometimes what I've called moral physics. 
God's words created and run the universe. It's all his program. Built into the system itself, which means just like gravity, when we don't obey the physical laws, when we don't obey the moral laws, the universe in which they are sewed into, wed as made or or made a part of, punishes us. No different than the physical laws. It's all a part of this program in creation. Why then again it's important we know our owner, our creator is an eternal mind and not eternal matter coming back to really the main focus of this verse, at least for Paul or this subject, because it means we have the solution to our moral dilemma. We have the solution. Because there is a God, an intelligent being who created and owns us, we as humans can possess a system of morality, right and wrong, that is truly unbiased, that is truly fair, and equitable and ultimately just or righteous because it is coming from a creator or owner who can not only determine such things, again, he is intelligent versus unintelligent or unthinking or lifeless matter, but also because he has the legal right to determine such things. Again, he owns us. He created us. He owns us. Nobody else has the right because nobody else owns us, including ourselves. That's the big thing today, right, is this idea that I'm the owner of me. Did you create you? Again, Psalm 119.91, all things are his servants because he made all things. He made us. We did not make ourselves. Hence the reason the new gender identity or choosing stuff is so rebellious. Someone told me recently that they filled out, I believe it was an application, and on the application it said, uh, what gender were you at your birth? God decided our gender when we were conceived. And it stays that way because he is the one that made us and he is the one that decides those things because he is the one owns us. And if you want to possess a morality that is truly unbiased, if you want to believe or, or, or fancy yourself that kind of a person, I am unbiased in my morality, in my judgment as it relates to right and wrong. I am a fair and equitable person. To do that requires that you get your morality then from your rightful owner or authority God. Anyone who opposes God is therefore not only rebellious to their owner or authority, but a massive hypocrite. Why? Well, because every human being believes that if you own something, then you have the right to determine how it functions. Is that not true? Have you ever met somebody who said, uh, what I own, I don't have the right to determine how it functions. Let's use the example of a car. If you own a car, you alone possess the authority to determine what is right or wrong for it. Do you not? 
You see a guy with a sledgehammer and he's busting out the windows in a car and you think, oh, this guy doesn't own that vehicle. There's no way he would do that to his car. And uh, let's say you're Tim and you go to that individual and, uh, as a police officer and uh, he shows you a proof of ownership. What happens next? Well, if that's what you want to do with what's yours, you have every right to do it. Ownership. Ownership equals authority. So the question is, did God create us? And if he did, then he owns us. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It means that we can be the people that we want to be, that we can be the moral creatures that we can't help but be. That we have a system for morality that allows us to truly be righteous because it is truly objective and unbiased and fair. It takes us back to the text number four. Moving on in the text, verses 27 and 28, 27 and 28. Paul continues that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That's the shiny word here, offspring. Paul is here, of course, continuing his argument for God. Remember, that's where we started This unknown, ignorant God that you serve, I now proclaim to you the true God, the true Lord or owner of heaven and earth. And he created you so that you would seek him because you are his offspring. This is the continuation then of this argument for God. Because it is the most natural thing to follow, which is the question of our purpose. If there is a God, if there is a God who deliberately created and owns everything, why did he create me? Or more specifically, what did he create me to do? What is my purpose? You know, that's still today considered the number one question asked by human beings. What is my purpose? It's a great question. What is my purpose? Well, again, you need to know your creator to know your purpose and to live your purpose. Why? Well, because the answer to that question, beloved, is he created us to be his image bearers. Or maybe more clearly, image reflectors. This goes back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. When God created us, he said, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he made them. In the image of God, he made them. Image bearing is what Paul is getting at then by these words, offspring. That's what we would say about our offspring, our children, our progeny. We would say that they are made in our image. This is also what he means by that phrase, seek God. That they should, there we see purpose. 
why God created, that they should seek God. Why should they seek God? Paul's support, again, we are indeed his offspring. We should seek to reflect him. That is our purpose. We were created to reflect his character through the way we live. Notice Paul scolds those who would be so stupid as to think that God is like things in creation or what we dream up in our minds. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You've seen the idols of false religions. Paul saw them again in Athens. It provoked him, we're told. Paul says, we shouldn't think that way. We're not that way. As his offspring. We shouldn't think that he comes from something in the creation. He is above us. He is not our offspring. We are his offspring. He was not created in our image. We were created in his image. The source is not here. It's not on earth and it's not in our minds. Our imaginations. What then is important not to miss about this image-bearing purpose that we have been given? Two things, I think. It is to be defined by God, not the world around us or the spirit of the age. What it means to be an image-bearer is defined again by God. It's His image that we bear. Not the world in As I say here, not the spirit of the age. This is really picking up on that phrase, art and imagination of man. And literally what is being said there is man's self-expression. And the idea is man's self-expression through human history. You can think of today what they call the, uh, the, the, the new or the current sexual revolution. And so called Christians and churches are embracing some of this. Conforming to the culture. And where they miss it is is that our image bearing is not determined again by the creation or the self-expression of man. But again God. Who God is and how we accurately bear his image is defined by him, not us. Hence the reason we need his instruction on morality. Going back to what we've already talked about. This is the reason that in the Bible we're told that uh, everything that God gives us, His system of morality, His rules for right and wrong, are just the manifestation of His character. To know the rules is to know then how to act like God. To fulfill our purpose. Which brings us then to the second thing important not to miss as it relates to this issue of image bearing studying God's word should not therefore be viewed as some tedious boring task that has no real benefit to our lives it is the key to our purpose for existing our ability to be accurate reflectors will always be proportionate to what we know or don't know about God And that, beloved, is the 
the kind of heart or attitude that we should take into the scriptures. Every time I read my Bible, I'm attempting to all the more fulfill my purpose as an image bearer. To be more accurate in my reflection of the one who created me. It brings us to number five and verse 30. These times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The shiny word here, overlooked. Overlooked. By this uh, term, uh, overlooked, uh, Paul is uh, not saying uh, let people get away with their sin. Uh, That's not what he's referring to here in times past or the times of ignorance. God overlooked. Not letting people get away with their sin, but rather two things. It means this. For thousands of years, God allowed people to damn themselves through their false beliefs about Him and their unrighteous, ignorant forms of morality. God rarely, if ever, stepped in to show them that they were wrong. That's what He's saying. And number two, for the majority of human history, only a very small group of people, less than 10% of the population, I'm speaking about, The Jewish population, Israel, who for a very long time, thousands of years, were the only place on planet Earth where the spiritual lights were on. For the majority of human history, only a very small group of people knew the truth about God and possessed his rules or laws for morality and proper image bearing. The rest were in total darkness. That's what Paul means by this term, Overlooked. Why does Paul tell us this? What's his point? Well, I think the reason that he tells us this is because it's crucial that we understand. And when I say we, I'm speaking of us today because it's just as true today as it was, no doubt, in Paul's day. That what God is doing by commanding all people to repent, you see the second phrase there, or the, uh, the second part of this verse... He's overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's crucial that we understand that what God is doing there, by doing that, by calling all races of people, and that's what he means by all people, to turn from their darkness and rebellion and listen to his revealed words in the Bible, that's what repent means. It is not something that God was ever obligated to do. Hence the reason for not calling people to repentance in the past. Hence the reason for overlooking them even now. There are people that God is overlooking. God's command to repent is instead and always has been based on not obligation, but mercy. Mercy. As I said, I think the problem that existed then, the thing that needed to be understood in Paul's day is the same or true today, just as it was back then. One of the biggest problems that people have today with God or the God of the Bible is the fact that he didn't do that, that he did overlook, 
That he hasn't revealed himself to everyone or given everyone a chance to be saved. We've all heard that, right? Anybody who has some semblance of what the Bible teaches as far as redemptive history is concerned knows that. They say, I don't think that's fair. There's all kinds of people even today who've never heard the gospel. They don't know about the risen and reigning king. That's not fair. The piece, however, that they miss, and I do again believe this is the crucial piece. Paul wants the Athenians to understand. It's the crucial piece that we need to understand. Is that the only reason such darkness and damnation exists is because of us, not God. Because humanity has, for those same thousands of years, chosen to walk away from God and their created purpose and live instead for self. Here's the question then, and I want you to be honest. In your assessment of it, who among us are not guilty of that very thing? Of choosing to walk away from God and choosing instead to live according to our own law. What obligation then does God have to humans who have not only rebelled against their purpose but slandered his name and destroyed his creation, once a paradise, in the process. You can be honest in your assessment. What obligation? Let's make it a little more personal. What obligation would we have to a person who not only rejects our care and counsel, but destroys our, po- our property and slanders our name. I can think of only one obligation. The only obligation that we would possess and that God does indeed possess in relation to us is to see that we serve justice. Hence the reason the majority of humanity will end up in hell because God is first and foremost a just God. Would you want it any other way? Do you want to corrupt God? Mercy is not something God or anybody else is obligated to. Maybe that was your thought. Well, he could be merciful, but here's the problem. Mercy, by definition, is something you are not obligated to, and mercy can never, ever negate justice. Mercy is therefore the thing we don't expect, but are glad when we get it. Which is really telling as it relates to what our response should be then to, he commands all people everywhere to repent. We should not chafe against that. We should be glad to get the opportunity to do it. To repent. It is him extending mercy to us, people who were at one time without hope, without mercy. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 12. What then we need to get right as it relates to this point? God is not the one at fault. God is not the one at fault for the way things are in the world or how lost people are. 
That is solely on us. The only thing we should be saying about God in this respect is that He is incredibly merciful to give those who don't deserve it a chance to turn from the rebellion, get right with Him, and live for the purpose He created them. Wherever we find that, that's absolute mercy. That brings us to our final shiny word. We find it in verse 31. Paul says these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Here's why. Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Justice, there it is, a God committed to justice. Justice by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The final shiny word then is judge. That word judge. And this tells us then why we need to repent, why we don't want to be the atheists, why we need to live as accurate image bearers, because how we live our lives... And what system of morality we lived for, what God we followed, and what promise or purpose we fulfilled is going to be assessed by the man whom he has appointed. And whom he is referring to is none other than Jesus, the risen and reigning king. What that tells us, what that tells us This life is not the end. This life is not the end. And here's the real paradigm shift. This life is instead the test. The test to determine where we deserve to spend eternity. One of two places. In paradise, which is uh, the reboot of heaven and earth that is spoken of in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, a place where there will be no more pain or suffering or death. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21. The reboot of heaven and earth. God is going to remake the whole thing, but this time without the sin. This time it's no longer a test. We, those who are there, have passed the test. Or we didn't. And where we deserve to go, where we deserve to spend eternity, because again, this life is not the end, no matter what your atheist friend tells you. The other place is the pit of hell, a lake of fire fit for those who choose to reject God and His purpose. You say, well, I think that's a little too extreme. I thought God is a just God. The punishment needs to fit the crime. Well, maybe... You don't understand that what determines the severity of any punishment, this is true even in America, is who that particular crime is committed against. I'll give you a perfect example from our own law system. Committing a crime against your fellow citizen versus committing that same crime against the President of the United States very different as to what the sentencing will look like 
because, again, of who it was committed against. In this case, against our Creator, our perfect Creator, the one who owns us. What we have committed against Him in rebellion by not living for Him amounts to the greatest crime of all. It is cosmic treason. And again, the punishment fitting that crime is a lake of fire. Where am I getting this from? Again, Revelation 20, verse 15. All those whose names were not found written in the book of life, after assessing and judging their deeds, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Why we can be assured that this life is not the end for us. And this is, beloved, why the resurrection is so important. How we know that this life is not the end is because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rising from the dead proves that there is something beyond this life. That this life is not the life. But again, the test. This is also what makes Easter so important For the Christian, those following God, his rules, his morality, and purpose for living, their deeds will be rewarded. What they do is gaining them something better than this life. We don't struggle with FOMO, the fear of missing out. Like Christ, the true Christian will be resurrected to a life far better than anything this world could ever offer. Andy said it, I believe, during the announcements. He quoted from 2 Corinthians 4. All of the pain and suffering, all that we do for Him and and being obedient to Him. What is waiting for us in comparison to that is an eternal weight of glory. Glory. It makes it all worth it. We sang it, I believe, in our last song, Made like Him, like Him we rise. We have this hope in Jesus Christ. Putting then all that we have learned into perspective means this. And I really hope this grabs you. You can see the real difference here because I think for far too long the world has made it seem as though they're in the better place. For the Christian, however, there is truly no bad news. It is all good news since everything we do is gaining for us eternity. The one thing, as I've said many times, that everybody ultimately wants is relief from pain, from tension in its various forms, whatever it is, stress, you name it. They want relief. And we call that pleasure. We call that a lot of different things. But that's ultimately what we want. And the only, the only system, the only thing that promises that is the Christian worldview. You die now for Christ. You live for the King now. You be loyal to King Jesus. And He promises you that you will rise again and go to a place where those things will never ever exist again. You want that kind of relief? You're only going to get that in heaven. And so for the Christian, man, there is no bad news. 
It truly is the only good news. Whereas for the atheists, it's funny, right? Everybody, I'm an atheist, so that's the, that's the smart position. This life is as good as it gets. This life. You say, oh, I think it's a pretty good life. Well, then you're either pretty young or pretty stupid. And probably both. As good as it gets, then it gets even worse, incomprehensibly so. The Christian message is therefore the best message there is. It is truly a message of hope. The atheist message is a message of hopelessness. The most depressing message there is. Closing contemplation, or maybe I should have called it the closing challenge. Beloved, here's what I want you to do. Share this bread with those who don't know it. Share what you've learned here today with those who don't know it. Use it to change the way they look at the world. Change the narrative. Based on what we've learned, Christianity is the only path that works in this world for producing a morality that is truly just, truly equitable, unbiased, fair for all people. It's the only path that does it, that works in this world and qualifies us for the world to come. Our resurrection, our resurrection paradise. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Again, what a wonderful day to worship you. Thank you so much for the way that you've allowed us to minister to you, but also, Father, the way that you, through your people, through your servants, have ministered to us. This day is for your people. We come with glad hearts to worship our risen and reigning King. And for those who stand among us who don't know that King, we pray today would be the day of salvation, the day of resurrection for them. As they see your people in the glorious, glorious good news they possess. Make it so. Cause us to share our bread today, what we've learned. We pray it in Jesus, our most glorious Savior's name. Amen.